Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Neil Sheehan, who died on January 7, 2021, at the age of 84, was one of the great American journalists. Known for having broken the Pentagon Papers in the New York Times, he was also the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award-winning author of A Bright Shining Lie, a history of the American involvement in Vietnam, as told through the life of Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Van. I had the opportunity to interview Neil Sheen while he was on tour for his book A Fiery Peace and a Cold War, Bernard Schriever and the Ultimate Weapon which focused on the nuclear stalemate between the United States and the Soviet Union and the history of the Cold War. While the focus of the interview is on a fiery peace in the Cold War, he also discusses American involvements in Vietnam, both Iraq wars and Afghanistan, and of course, the Pentagon Papers. My guest is Neil Sheehan, whose latest book is A Fiery Peace in a Cold War, earlier books A Bright and Shining Lie, John Paul Van and America in Vietnam, The Arnheider Affair, After the War Was Over, and Two Cities. Neil Sheehan began his career with UPI in Tokyo and Saigon, wound up with the New York Times. Aside from these two books, also known for being the Times reporter who broke the Pentagon Papers story. This latest book is a history of the Cold War now that it's over, told from the perspective of one individual, a man named Bernard Benny Schriever. And I understand that you were planning to write, you wanted to write a history of the Cold War, but you didn't have anything to grab onto until you found out that this man was living near you. I was searching for a book. I'd written myself out on Vietnam, and someone said to me, why don't you write a book on the arms race in the Cold War? That's really a pretty diffuse topic. I like to write a narrative history that brings things alive for the reader. So I was over at the Air Force Association Library across the river from Washington in Arlington, and they keep files on major figures in the Air Force. And somebody told me, you, you ought to look up Bernard Schriever. His nickname was Benny because he was a great golfer when he was as a youth, and the, the reporters in San Antonio wanted something slicker in their headlines than Bernard, so they, they nicknamed him Benny. So I asked for his record, and the librarian gave it to me, and I opened it up. And the first thing in there was a photograph, which is in the book, of this handsome Air Force general sitting on the edge of a table, surrounded by all these models of all these missiles he'd built. And I said, he looks interesting. So I looked him up in the phone book, and he turned out to be living eight blocks away from me. And I called him up. He said, come on over on Saturday morning. I went over, and that was the first of 52 interviews. That particular interview, as you were starting it, were you thinking, this is the man, or at what point did you realize that this was not merely the man, but this was, in a way, the book? This didn't become apparent immediately. It was a number of interviews later. I realized that this man had stood at the center of the Cold War, 
in a period which had been really never written about carefully before and hadn't been studied carefully before. People think of the Cold War as one long ice age, but it wasn't. In the 50s and at the turn of the 60s, it was quite a warm confrontation between the two superpowers. If something had, had gone wrong, we might well have had nuclear war. And I realized that this man and, and the work he'd done was at the center of that, of the Cold War, when it wasn't cold. And that if I told his story, I could chronicle that period of time in an exciting way. And, and I like to think, I, I hope at least, I cast light where there's darkness with a book. Well, this is a chance to cast some light. The career of General Schriever is the career that pretty much takes him from World War II to running the ICBM program in the United States, which led to NASA, led to, as it turns out, I didn't know this, wide-bodied jets. The idea of choosing a general rather than a politician, what do you think that gave you and how did that change your own perception of looking at the Cold War? Military men are men of action first of all, and I've written about the military all my life. I'd never written about this side of the military because I hadn't had an opportunity before. Military men, there's a decisiveness to their lives. There's an excitement to their lives. They're dealing with the most important thing ever. For instance, in Schriever's case, you and I might well not be having this conversation now had it not been for Schriever and his comrades and the accomplishments they made because they staved off a nuclear holocaust during the first part of the Cold War. We might be little piles of irradiated dust. So I began to realize this as I talked further to this man. The Vietnam book was written about a military man, too, John Van, who'd served 10 years in Vietnam before he was killed there. And Schriever, to me, could be used the same way. He was a lens through which I could look at this period of the Cold War, which was really a dangerous period. The stunning part of it is the idea that creating so many ICBM missiles that we could destroy the Soviet Union several times over, and they're creating just enough to destroy us several times over, created a stalemate that ensured no hot war. Obviously, people like General LeMay and others didn't see it that way, and if they had been in charge, kaboom. From the beginning, do you think Schriever knew that this was the only way to stave off war by almost like overdoing it? It seems like a contradiction in terms, right. uh, because it's difficult at first to deal with it. But yes, Schriever realized that the, the situation was unst inherently unstable, and he had to do something to stabilize it. He'd say over and over again, this is a weapon that's being built not to be used in war, but to deter war. It's the first in the history of humankind. We were dependent at the time for the United States nuclear deterrent on the bomber the B-47s and the B-52s in the Strategic Air Command under the command of General Curtis LeMay, who had been a great bomber leader in World War II and who then went off the rails during the Cold War. He was the inspiration for General Jack D. Ripper in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, the grim-faced man with a cigar, etc. If you watch late-night television and you see a film called 12 O'Clock High on the bombing of Germany, it shows you the experience LeMay had. They had enormous casualties, having fighting their way deep into Germany, but the bombers always got through in his mind. So he believed in nothing else. Unfortunately, and Schriever could see this, LeMay's bombers were about to be undercut. The credibility of them was about to be undercut by technology. It was possible to build an intercontinental ballistic missile which would arrive within 15 minutes. That's all the warning you'd have. And you'd have no way of stopping the thing. So you wouldn't be able to get the planes off the ground in time. Now, you could take 
things like have seen some of them on airborne alert, but you couldn't put the whole force in that. And in any case, once a weapon like this existed in large numbers, the credibility of, uh, of the deterrent would be undercut. And then you'd get, Schreiber was convinced, more instability and you'd get a possible adventurism by Soviet leaders that would trigger a nuclear war. It also created a situation where had the Soviets not countered, there could just have easily been adventurism on the part of people like Curtis LeMay who would have said, screw it, let's just bomb Russia. He wasn't that bad. There are people who said, yeah, let's bomb Russia. There were so-called preventive war people. We're going to have to fight them anyway, so let's drop the bomb now. LeMay believed in preemptive war. That is, if he was convinced that the Russians were going to attack us, then we should strike the first blow. The problem was that he didn't realize that these weapons of his were suicidal weapons, that the ecological side effects of, the, of nuclear weapons were such that they would destroy life in the Northern Hemisphere. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, Curtis LeMay, if they turned him loose and told him to do it, was going to drop 2,400 megatons of thermonuclear explosive on the Soviet Union. That's the equivalent of 192,000 Hiroshima bombs. The ecological side effects would have, there would have been no agriculture because all that dirt thrown up into the atmosphere would have blocked out the sun. All the water sources would have been poisoned permanently for tens of God knows how many thousands of years. Every time it rained, more people would have died of radiation poisoning. It would be the end of the Northern Hemisphere. But he did not understand that. He wasn't planning to actually disobey the president. But during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we came very close because Nikita Khrushchev put the missiles in Cuba to try to overcome the American strategic advantage. And when we found out that they were there, the military unanimously, not just LeMay, wanted to attack the, the missile sites and knock out the missiles. What they didn't know was that the Soviets already had nuclear warheads for those missiles in Cuba. And, and the missiles could reach as far as New York. They were practicing at night. And this is something you don't find out till the war is over. And the Cold War is over, so we now know this. They were practicing loading these missiles, the warheads, nuclear warheads, on the missiles at night when the reconnaissance planes wouldn't catch them at it and then hiding them during the day. If the United States military had attacked and those Soviet missile crews were under fire, they probably would have launched a missile. In fact, one guy who was a retired general, senior general, he was head of the Strategic Rocket Forces. He was a lieutenant on one of those batteries. He said, yes, we would have fired one of the missiles if we were attacked. Those things could reach as far as New York. Now, at that point, you got people like LeMay who would have just gone. If one nuclear warhead hit one American city, LeMay would not have waited for the president. He would have just said, go. Neil Sheehan, did Schriever, did he sense this idea of nuclear winter? I mean, was he clear? I was a kid. We didn't even know that if a nuclear war happened, we figured, okay, you know, the closest we knew was, you know, on the beach, which is pretty bad, but not as bad as nuclear winter. When I talked to him, he was conscious of all these things. He said to me once that Chernobyl was a small thing in, in nuclear effects. It was just a small example of what could happen. No, he was quite conscious of it. He knew what he was talking about. He was a thoughtful man. He wasn't dealing just with weapons. He was dealing with strategic effects of weapons and the political outcome that would result. It seems in reading the book that Schriever and Eisenhower were very much on the same page opposed to people like LeMay. <laughs> Yes, they were on the same page. 
again, to give you an example of how unstable the situation was in the 50s, Eisenhower used to talk about a nuclear Pearl Harbor. He lived in fear of a nuclear Pearl Harbor. A first strike by the Soviets had knock out our nuclear capabilities. When they, they set up shop to build these things in an empty Catholic boys' school in Ingleside, California. It's a suburb of Los Angeles out by the airport. Their briefing room was the chapel. They covered up the stained glass portraits of the saints because they wanted secure, more security, so they blocked them off. But also, they were uncomfortable talking about a weapon like this in the midst of such a holy place, etc., and briefing from the altar rail, what had been the altar rail. At first, the bureaucracy had grown so big that Schriever had to clear everything he did with 42 different agencies. They had to get swift decision-making, special dispensation to cut through the bureaucracy, number one. And number two, they had to get adequate, swift funding that nobody else could touch. And the only person who can give that to you is the president. But you don't just pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, Mr. President, I'd like to brief you on this matter, etc. They launched a, an intrigue to get to see Eisenhower. Schriever leaked classified information to a senator who was a big hawk from Washington State. His Jackson. name was Scoop Jackson. And Jackson held hearings, which were based upon the stuff Schriever leaked to him, plus testimony from a man named John von Neumann, who was a famous mathematician, mathematical physicist, who was working with Schriever, and a guy named Trevor Gardner, a Welshman who was also assistant secretary of the airports for research and development. As a result of these hearings, Jackson wrote a letter to Eisenhower in which he said, you, this is a terribly important problem and you don't know anything about it. You should find out about it because the security of the country, the future of the country is at stake. Ike immediately told the head of the National Security Council staff to schedule a briefing. No one knew that the people who drafted the letter were Schriever, von Neumann, and, and Trevor Gardner. Jackson just signed it. When they got to the, to the briefing with Eisenhower, they were told by the head of the National Security Council staff that they only had half an hour to talk to the president. And under no circumstances were they to bring up the subject of this letter in an attempt to pressure the president. And Schriever wrote in his diary that night, termites in the woodwork. In other words, clearly the staff director was not one of their friends. Anyway, they briefed, not just Ike, they briefed the whole National Security Council, which then was a large organization. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, all the cabinet secretaries, the other members of the Joint Chiefs, the American power establishment in one room. The briefing ran an hour and a half. First, Trevor Gardner scared the living hell out of everybody in the room. Fifteen minutes, fellas. That's all. That's all the time we have, and, and, it, and you can't stop it. And then von Neumann talked about the nuclear aspects. He scared everybody in the room. Then it was up to Schriever to wrap this stuff up, and he was a very handsome man, Benny Schriever, the handsomest general in the Air Force. A New York Times reporter once compared him to Jimmy Stewart. Actually, I think he, he was a better-looking man than Jimmy Stewart. Six foot three, you know, very trim man. He was to wrap it all up and lay out the problems that had to be solved to get these things built. Eisenhower, at this point, was so interested. All the chairs were straight wooden back chairs, except one in the center, first center row, which was a very plush red leather armchair in which the president sat. But this time, Eisenhower was so interested, he was leaning forward on the edge of this, of this chair. He wasn't sitting back in it. But Schriever had to give him a chance to stop the briefing because they'd run an hour way over, and he was just going to start himself. So he said, Mr. President, we have a short film of eight minutes testing of rocket engines that we'd like to show you at the end of this briefing, if you'd like to see it, sir. Ike just nodded. In other words, go ahead, son. Take all the time you want. They took an hour and a half. Ike signed off on September 13th. 
Ten days later, he got a, his first heart attack, and he couldn't attend a major briefing for two months. I mean, they just got in under the wire. He gave them the swift decision-making and the funding. If they hadn't gotten it done then, God knows what would have happened. I mean, the thing, really, the thing would, would really have gotten delayed. And Schriever was constantly fearful that the Russians would get a whole fleet of these things and undermine the credibility of LeMay's bombers, and then you'd get, you know, you'd get war. One subtext through all of this is the way the military-industrial complex came together. At one point, the military is working with these companies, and then at the next point, Schriever hits a brick wall with this, where the companies are starting to control what's happening rather than America's needs, say. The problem he ran into was that we did not have an aerospace industry in this country. We just had an aircraft industry. He had to create an aerospace industry to build these missiles, because you're talking about, you know, what is an ICBM? It's a rocket with a warhead that has a hydrogen bomb in it. It's fired up into space. It travels across six to 7,000 miles at 16,000 miles an hour, and then it comes down on its target. There were a lot of problems to be solved, and we didn't have an industry capable of doing that. The aircraft industry had gotten fat, building aircraft during World War II at a clip space, and they had friends in high places, and they tried to block him. They wanted control over the program in order to profit, milk it, and he was determined not to give them the control because they wouldn't make it succeed. They didn't know what they were doing. And it was quite a fight. He put up, and he finally won it. An outfit called Convair was really out to get him. They were trying to get him fired or pressure him into giving them the, the program. But there was a military-industrial complex. It wasn't really as simple as people think it is. What you got was you got an industry which was dependent upon military orders. Then they get friends in, within the military, and they try to influence things. But it wasn't a simple thing. In the case of Schriever, he was, he was battling them. When Schriever finally began to move on, which was the, the start of the American space program, it was also the era when Vietnam began to take over. Someone like Schriever, what would he think about Vietnam. I mean, we know that, and again, it's in the book, but it's also in Bright Shining Lie, exactly where things went sour, decisions made. As he saw it from the outside, did he talk at all about Vietnam? I talked to him to some extent about Vietnam. He really didn't understand what had happened there. He retired from the military in 66, but earlier on, he was not involved in any of the Vietnam programs. And the big work that he'd done was in the 50s and the turn of the 60s. I didn't pursue the subject of Vietnam with him because he really, he really didn't understand it. What's ironic about that whole thing is that technology was something we could make work, which Schriever and his cohorts did. They created a nuclear stalemate, which bought time for the Soviet Union to collapse. Which brings up something else. It's considered conventional wisdom among media, the corporate media, that the Soviet Union collapsed because Reagan forced them into debt over military arms. And what you suggest here is, that's not it at all. The Soviet Union was rotting from within anyway. It certainly was rotting from within. I mean, the Soviet Union was an unworkable society. And we're talking about Stalin's state, as I get into in the book, because I reach out to the wider stage of the Cold War. You know, why did it start? Figures like Stalin, the Soviet Union was a creation of Joseph Stalin. The three pillars of the state were, one, the KGB, before that the NKVD, as it was called. It was the main pillar, the secret police. Then you had the military, and then you had the party. 
none of these three organizations produced anything that could be sold. They simply took. We don't have precise figures. They're impossible to get. But as far as one can figure out, the military were getting about 25 to 30% of all production in Russia. This country, which it had missiles, but no pharmaceutical industry worth a damn. It was incredible. They got small amounts from East Germany, and then they bought what else they needed from the West. All they really had to sell was, was oil and gold and this sort of thing. In some ways, it was an underdeveloped economy. It was a narrowly based economy. The rot set in pretty early. Khrushchev was the last reformer. He liberalized within and he tried to reform. Afterwards, Leonid Brezhnev, who succeeded him, overthrowing him in 64, he was a status quo figure. The economy started to decline, in fact, under Brezhnev. Brezhnev was interested in his mistresses and wild boar shooting that he took Henry Kissinger out on. He was interested in you know, running the Soviet, this great big state, the Soviet Union. He certainly didn't want any nuclear wars. Uh, he didn't want anybody spoiling his pleasant life. A quote Brezhnev in the book is saying to his brother at one point, communism is just something to tell the population. And Mikhail Gorbachev, of course, attempted to reform. When you try to reform a system like that, you tend to make it worse. And it came down. You present the idea that the Cold War got hotter because the U.S. misunderstood Stalin's blockade of Berlin, and Stalin, thinking that the U.S. was out to get him, obviously responded in kind. If the U.S. could have gotten Stalin, wouldn't they have? I don't think so. Going to war with the Soviet Union was something that, after World War II, I don't think anybody, I mean, people wanted to avoid that sort of thing. We didn't want to get involved in another major war. Stalin was constantly shooting himself in the foot. He was a paranoid monster, the second greatest monster of the 20th century. He suffered from, almost from clinical paranoia. He trusted no one. Shortly before the war with Germany, 37, 38, in the Great Terror, he shot the whole high command of the Red Army, rendered it leaderless at a time when he might be invaded by Hitler, and was subsequently. And one of the reasons for the major defeats in the beginning was because Stalin had wiped out the whole damn high command, all the people with experience. In the case of Berlin... He shot himself in the foot because we were unifying the western parts of Germany, the three allies. He wanted to prevent that. He thought that Luftwaffe had not been able to supply the Germans at Stalingrad, the great turning point battle of World War II. Stalin said well, if the Luftwaffe couldn't supply an army of 250,000 men, how are the Americans going to supply a whole city? They'll have to give in and negotiate to keep Germany dismembered on my terms. Well, he didn't realize he had no conception of the transport capabilities the American Air Force could marshal. So the whole thing turned into a fiasco. I mean, it was a wonderful propaganda thing for the United States. Because here are these films of these planes coming in through the snow and the rain and, and the children waving at them. It was incredible. What had happened was after the war, you had, of course, the French, British, and American, and Soviet zones. They were supposed to be governed under a four-power council. The economy was getting worse and worse and worse. And also, remember, the Cold War was getting worse. as We collided with Stalin in other areas, over Eastern Europe, etc., Stalin's repressive policies there. The Americans and the other allies wanted to resurrect the German economy. You couldn't do that if the country was constantly fragmented. So they wanted to unify their sections and resurrect the economy. Stalin didn't want that. He wanted Germany kept fragmented, and he wanted reparations on a large scale, which he wasn't given. And so he assumed, well, I'll blockade the Americans in Berlin, and then they'll have to negotiate with me because they won't be able to feed the city. We were able to feed the city, and then he, he was desperate to lift the blockade. 
Khrushchev's putting missiles in Cuba was kind of a tit-for-tat for the United States putting missiles in Turkey, and that backfired as well. It backfired on Khrushchev, yes. Khrushchev reacted to, to some extent because we put missiles in Turkey. I don't think the United States was thinking clearly when it did that because it was something of a provocation. Also, the Russians were not making the progress they were supposed to be making in building ICBMs. Schriever and his people were outdistancing them. There was a missile gap. The missile gap was on the Soviet side. So Khrushchev was trying to even the score by putting these missiles, you know, 90 miles off the shore, etc. It turned out we now know within reach of New York. It backfired because he was warned by Gromyko and others. That, first of all, the Americans are going to catch you doing this. You're not going to be able to hide them. And secondly, you don't understand. The Americans view Cuba with great sensitivity. If you put missiles in Cuba, there'll be a political explosion in the United States, and the Americans will have to do something about it. This Russian garrison with these missiles was thousands of miles away from the Soviet Union. How are they going to support them? Khrushchev was warned by a number of his contemporaries, look, this is crazy. Don't do it. He was a curious man. He was an internal liberalizer and a foreign adventurer. And he just pressed ahead, and, and the whole thing blew up in his face. Neil Sheehan, in writing this book, what did you specifically learn? Were there any real revelations that you learned on the way that just were aha moments, where pieces came together in ways you hadn't suspected? We Americans always like to think that the Normandy landing was a decisive battle of World War II because we're so cultural-centric, if I can make up a term. It wasn't. It was an important battle, the Normandy landing, but it was a finishing battle. The turning point battle of World War II was Stalingrad, a year and a half earlier and 2,000 miles away, further to the east. We did not defeat the Germans in World War II in Europe. The Russians defeated them. Germany suffered 13,600,000 casualties during the Second World War, 73 to 74% of them on the Eastern Front. Now, the sacrifice on the Soviet side was tremendous. I mean, for every American killed in World War II, the Russians suffered 27 dead. About 12 million military casualties and something like 27 million civilian casualties. It was incredible. And also, the fact that Stalin, the monster he was, became more and more clear as, as I got into the research decapitating your army before your enemy's going to invade. The chief of the German general staff, a man named Halder, wrote in his diary, Die Rote Armee ist Führerlos. This is on the eve of the German invasion of, of Russia in 41. It's German for, it may be ungrammatical, my pronunciation of it, but the Red Army is leaderless. And it was. That, to me, was a revelation. I mean, there were a number of historical revelations to me that are based upon material which was in the book, which is new, that we didn't have before. You were the guy who Daniel Ellsberg went to with the Pentagon Papers, which was, uh, I guess, a 7,000-page history of Vietnam that was commissioned two years earlier by uh, Robert McNamara, and I guess written by Leslie Gelb. Leslie Gelb oversaw the project. He didn't write it. Was, each section was written by a different person. Do you think a Pentagon Papers event could happen today? And if not, why not? I think things like the Pentagon Papers are brought on by long, terrible wars. Uh, and Vietnam was a catastrophe that went on for years that divided the country more than any time since the Civil War. And then you had a man who was full of guilt, Robert McNamara in 67, who commissions this study, which 
ended up being a secret archive of the war itself. I'm talking about the internal telegrams, the orders, the memoranda, etc. That's an extraordinary thing. And it only happens on rare, rare occasions. We've learned a lot about Bush going into Iraq, but nothing as explosive as the Pentagon Papers. Well, we seem to know about the lies pretty early on when it comes to Iraq. Yes, but in the case of the Pentagon Papers, and I, I covered Vietnam for three years in, in Vietnam and then then in Washington, so altogether for 10 years, it amazed me how much they've been able to keep hidden then. Now, how much Bush has been able to hide, I don't know. But I don't think a lot because you know it's a defeat. I suspect it, it's not a lot anyway. We can see the disaster. When you look back on your time in Vietnam, is there a certain feeling of excitement that you felt you were in the right place at the right time to do the right thing? Oh, there was a great excitement being a young reporter in Vietnam, yeah. I mean, because first of all, it was an important story. You felt you were getting information out that otherwise would, would never get out. You were getting truths out that never would never see the light of day. So that's a very powerful feeling for a journalist to have, that he's casting light in dark places. That's what you're supposed to do, get the truth out. And when Ellsberg first contacted you about the Pentagon Papers, your eyes must have widened. I mean, did you believe that something like this could exist? Well, that was a complicated story. I knew about it earlier, but when I started to read them, I was just amazed at how much they'd managed to hide. It strikes me now in reading your book, A Fiery Peace and a Cold War, Neil Sheehan, that there was always so much to hide. I mean, there are little bits and pieces in this book about the Cold War that we're still uncovering now. That's true. Although the most interesting stuff has come up with the Russian Soviet side since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We now understand, you know, what Stalin's motive was behind the Berlin blockade, for instance. Uh, we know now that he didn't have a plan to conquer Western Europe. What he wanted to do was hold on to Eastern Europe that he'd gotten during World War II. We now know that the Korean War, for instance, was another miscalculation based upon Dean Acheson and a number of others saying we weren't interested in South Korea. And so Stalin allowed Kim Il-sung to talk him into arming Kim Il-sung and turning them loose. It was all posited on the assumption that the Americans would not intervene because we said we wouldn't intervene. Isn't that sort of like 1991 and Saddam Hussein thinking the Americans wouldn't intervene when he went into Kuwait? That's right. You know, he made a major miscalculation too. Of course, there you're talking about, a, again, a situation where what happened was the Truman administration realized, Truman himself realized, that he had to defend South Korea in order to preserve our credibility with the Japanese population because they were very sensitive about Korea. Saddam Hussein, who is not the world's brightest man, should have realized you can't grab the Americans' gas station and not have them react. Well, you were an early critic of the uh, Bush invasion of Iraq. From the very beginning, I guess, you sensed this was something we shouldn't do. Was it just because of the experience of Vietnam, or was there more to it? Vietnam influenced me a great deal, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. It made no sense at all. Uh, one of the reasons I think he did it was because he, did, he didn't experience Vietnam. He hid in the Texas Air National Guard, which his daddy got him in. Cheney got draft deferments. Rumsfeld wasn't involved in the war. Wolfowitz, who was uh, Rumsfeld's deputy, was another one who escaped the war. Colin Powell got schnuckered by these intelligence reports. He was the only one who had any experience with Vietnam. I mean, if you'd come in to see me and said you wanted to go invade Iraq, 
based upon my experience of Vietnam, I said, you're crazy. You're out, you're out of your mind, man. First of all, it's, uh, it's unnecessary. And that was one of the main lessons of the war in Vietnam. Don't start unnecessary wars. Because after the first shot is fired, you don't know what the hell's going to happen. You know, when John Kennedy sent those advisors into Vietnam in 1961, a man named George Ball, who's the Undersecretary of State, said, Mr. President, if you send those advisors in helicopters, et cetera, into Vietnam, you're going to have 300,000 troops there in five years. And Kennedy said to Ball, George, you're crazier than hell. Ball said to me when I interviewed him, I was wrong. It was less than five years. Neil Sheehan, we've got now, with Obama president, we've got two wars going on at once. I look at both of them and I'm seeing two Vietnams because in both cases, you know, there's no exit strategy and people talk about winning, but nobody's defining winning. They're going to get out of Iraq. The exit strategy is to get out of Iraq. I mean, we're starting to withdraw and we're just going to leave. I hope nothing happens to the 50,000 men they plan to leave behind, but we're going to get out of that country. President Obama is simply going to get out. As far as Afghanistan is concerned, I hope they're careful because that has the possibility of turning into a, a quandary, a quagmire, excuse me. No foreign army has ever lasted for a long time in Afghanistan. Its central government has always remained weak. It's a fragmented society. They don't think like us. Look at those mountains, man. The Russians went into Afghanistan in 1979. I remember when they went in, they allowed people to interview their troops at first before they kicked all the Western press out. And these young Russian kids were saying, listen, this is the Red Army. We defeated the Nazis. We'll take care of this. We'll fulfill our, what they call our international duty. And I thought to myself, you poor beggars. I mean, I, because they sound like the American soldiers did in Vietnam in 65 in the beginning when they all believed. Uh, you know, five years from now, half of you will be dead or crippled and nobody will give a damn. And that's what happened. So one has to be very careful by, about a country like Afghanistan. Neil Sheehan, in doing the research for fiery peace in a cold war, somewhere in the back of your mind, you must have been searching for the seeds of Vietnam to see whether they were there, how far they traced back some of the ideas that wound up in Vietnam. Did you find any seeds, anything that said, okay, I can see this is a piece in the puzzle from the 50s and 40s? Yeah, about the fact that, you know, the Cold War bred an American theology about communism, which became real to not only to the leaders of this country. If you read Eisenhower's memoirs, he talks about the international communist conspiracy. He talks about the falling dominoes in Asia, which Truman first was concerned with, falling dominoes in the Middle East. We believed all that stuff. It was widely accepted by the American public, and it prevented us from understanding figures like Ho Chi Minh, who was a communist in his domestic politics, but who was essentially a nationalist. Uh, how destructive this Cold War theology became, because it was a theology. It didn't resemble reality at all. This is a very big book. There's a lot in here. What did you leave out? Uh, I tried to keep things terse. I write for the general reader. I wanted a fast-paced narrative. Two writers influenced me stylistically. First, Ernest Hemingway, the need to craft sentences, and then 
Truman Capote, his book In Cold Blood. I realized you could write nonfiction in a novelistic form without distorting the truth. And that's what I do in this book. I did it also in A Bright Shining Lie. There's a deliberate attempt to, to create a, a narrative to bring history alive for the reader, to put the reader in the past in a way that the reader will feel he's in the past and can sense it, what it's like. So, yes, that's there. You worked on this thing for how many years now? Well, I was at it for 14 years, but I had interruptions. I, I had health problems along the way, but it was a long, it was a long haul. How do you live when you're just working on one book for 15 years? Random House was generous with their advance, number one. Number two, uh, first, you're doing the research, which is very exciting. And then you live like a monk. You get up in the morning and you have your breakfast and, and you sit in front of your computer and you start to work. And you do, do it day after day, year after year, until you finally got what you want. For instance, you said, what's on the cutting room floor? I had written originally a 35-page or so profile of General LeMay. I decided, and my editor decided too, it's too long. Slow the reader down. You've got to compress it. I compressed it down to nine pages. Now, you don't just cut. You have to telescope. It has to say the same thing in nine pages as you had previously said in 35. All this takes a lot of time. I would guess that trying to compress the entire scientific background behind the various missiles must have been hell. <clears throat> it was hell, yeah. I try to make it read as simply as possible in layman's language because some of the stories are interesting. You get people like... Colonel Richard Jacobson, you get people like Werner von Braun, who attempted to steal the ICBM program from Schriever, uh, and an ambitious Hall. army general. The two halls are fascinating. You know, the one who is the, the father of the Minuteman missile, the younger one was a spy for the Soviets at Los Alamos. Now, the brother, the older brother, didn't find out that the younger brother had been a spy for the Soviets at Los Alamos until he was in his 80s. Theodore Hall, Edward Hall's younger brother, was a physics prodigy from Harvard. I mean, he, he provided really useful information. The counterintelligence people of Los Alamos were a bunch of Keystone cops. They surrounded the laboratory with a fence, and they had guard towers, watchtowers everywhere. But they never checked on the background of anybody they let in the gates. And so in comes, first of all, Klaus Fuchs, who was a communist who fled Germany to England to avoid being executed by the Nazis. He'd been sent over by the Brits. Then they recruited this physics protege from Harvard, Theodore Hall. He was one of the few Harvard, a small number of Harvard students who had belonged to the Communist Society at Harvard. If you checked on both of these men, you'd have realized, hey, you know, these are the last people we want to vote through the gates. And Theodore Hall volunteered to spy for the Soviets. He didn't get paid. He did it out of ideological reasons. But they never focused on the real spies. I mean, there's one incident I relate in the book where the Soviet consulate in New York sent out a courier to pick up Hall's information, a woman who later became a famous Soviet spy named Lana Cohen. She met Hall in Santa Fe. He handed over several note pages, of it, and he was working at the central problems of the bomb. He handed over several note pages to her. She went back to her hotel, packed, and ran for the train to New York. She got to the station and she discovered that there were security people there searching the suitcases of everybody who got on the train, as well as the ladies' pocketbooks. So what am I going to do? So she takes the pages with the secret information and puts it in the bottom of a box of Kleenex she's carrying. 
and she waits until it's just before the train leaves. And she goes out and she puts the Kleenex under her arm. She makes believe she's the helpless woman fumbling with a zipper on her pocketbook. Then she takes the Kleenex box and hands it to one of the security men. They search her handbag. They search her, 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 her suitcase. And she's shrewd enough not to ask for that box of Kleenex back. Those were the days when men were more gallant than women than they often are now. She picks up her handbag and her suitcase, and she heads for the train. The security guy says, Madam, you forgot your Kleenex, and he answered the box with this spice. It's incredible. Now that you've completed a fiery piece in a Cold War, what do you plan on next? I'll probably write something autobiographical. I grew up on a farm in Massachusetts. Some of it, I had a wonderful mother who helped me to get an education, etc., who opened the doors. Some things that people might be interested in, human things. As it turned out, Neil Sheehan's memoir was never published, or at least hasn't been published to this point in time, and A Firing Piece in the Cold War was his last published book. Shortly after Neil Sheehan's death, an interview with Sheehan was published in the New York Times detailing how the Pentagon Papers found their way to publication. And this is in Sheehan's own words. I'd known Ellsberg for a long time, and he thought I was operating under the same rules that one normally used. Source controls the material. He didn't realize that I decided, this guy is just impossible. You can't leave it in his hands. It's too important, and it's too dangerous. So according to the Times, Sheehan enlisted his wife's help and photocopied thousands of pages of classified documents at a time when making copies required access to a shop and a lot of time and expense. They took on false names and flew with suitcases filled with papers in order to get documents to the Times. Before going to the press, the Times notes that Sheehan told Ellsberg he would need actual copies rather than just notes, though he didn't tell him that he already had those copies. Sheehan said, maybe it's hypocritical, but we were going to go to press, and I wanted to try to give him some kind of warnings. Months later, they ran into each other, and according to Sheehan, Ellsberg said the reporter had stolen the Pentagon Papers like I did. No, Dan, I didn't steal it, Sheehan answered, and neither did you. Those papers are the property of the people of the United States. They paid for them with their national treasure and the blood of their sons, and they have a right to it. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.